Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This is another one of our up-to-date segments, and joining me is Adam Bristol. Thanks for having me. As our listeners know, we live in Northern California. And so the wildfires have been a real problem for us over the last few months. And I've heard a lot about, you know, people talking about climate change and its effect. And we've been living in San Francisco, what, for how many years now? Like 14 14 years. years. And it definitely feels as if the last few years we've had more days of poor air quality compared to, you know, the first few years. that I agree. Absolutely. And when you have two small children and there's a global pandemic, having to stay indoors in your house can be particularly salient and awful. And so I wondered whether this was just a cognitive bias of ours that, you know, we are noticing it more now because it has a much bigger impact on our quality of life. Uh, But that doesn't seem to be the case from kind of, you know, more than just our own anecdotal evidence. Uh, But I wanted to actually see whether there was any science that could tell us why we seem to be having more fires. I mean, you know, it sort of seems intuitive that, well, it's warmer, so there should be more fires. But of course, there's lots of parts of the US that are very warm that don't suffer from wildfires. And so I thought we could delve into this a little bit more deeply. Um, So I found a paper in Environmental Research Letters, which is open access. And it's about, it was published uh, on the 20th of August in 2020. So very current. And it essentially has a model showing why climate change might be increasing the likelihood of extreme autumn wildfire conditions across California. So let me tell you a little bit about it. The last couple of seasons of of wildfires have been particularly bad, as people know. And what's happened is that these autumn wildfires have essentially come when there have been several days where it's gotten quite warm and when we've had dry conditions. So you think, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, right? So I wanted to sort of get a little bit more deeply into this model and sort of figure out what evidence they're showing that this is a change over the last decade. So what they wanted to do is take a look at the occurrence and magnitude 
of meteorological factors that seem to underlie some of the extreme autumn wildfires in our state. What they found is that there are statewide increases in autumn temperatures in the last decade of about one degree, and that when it becomes one degree hotter than, you know, I guess the average or, or it has been in, in previous years, that can also coincide with less precipitation. So over the past four decades, there seems to be this one degree aggregate increase in autumn temperature and a 30% decrease in precipitation. So those are the two factors that kind of lay the groundwork for these dry, hot days. And we certainly have had more of these dry, hot days, it seems, in August and September in the last couple years than we did, say, you know, 14 years ago when we first moved here. And at the same time, we have a drought, uh, long-term droughts that have, that have created uh, these very dry vegetation conditions. And so they have a number of different graphs where they plot from the 1980s till 2020, uh, a number of these statewide trends in climate, and they show strong correlations with the amount of acres that burn in each of those years. Um, so essentially, it seems, and so they, it's, they call this confluence of both an increase in temperature and drier conditions fire weather. So they have a fire sure, weather sure. index that they that they created. And um, when you look at these graphs, essentially what you see is that there there is this uh, steady increase in fire weather index high days over the course of those decades. So it seems like what's happening is that we have more days that are sort of red flag alerts, more days where in a year where there are more dangers of, of fire. But like last year, for example, we didn't have a tremendously bad fire season, but two years ago we did. Um, and it, it it looks like what what's happened is that not necessarily that those uh, fires are being ignited uh, by in, in natural circumstances. A lot of the fires are actually started by human activity events. Like, for example, you know, I think the probably the most egregious this year was a fire in Southern California that was started uh, during a gender reveal party, uh, you know, for a baby. And there was like some kind of firework thing that was supposed to, you know, tell you what gender the baby was, which you know, is already problematic, uh, but started this terrible wildfire. Mm -hmm. But the idea behind this paper is that when you have an increased incidence of these days, then, you know, when there's a spark that's lit by human activity, it is more likely to create devastating fires and uncontrollable wildfires than in a decade where there are fewer of these days. Uh, so I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting, I should give the names of the authors. Michael Goss is the first author. Noah Diffenbach is the last author. So in case you want to look up this paper. I just thought it was a really interesting way of kind of thinking about the risk and that it's not necessarily guaranteed that climate change is going to lead to more wildfires, but climate change seems to set the stage for more opportunities for wildfires to take hold and, uh, you know, become more devastating. I mean, it sounds as though from your description that the paper not only provides longitudinal data to support what we sense from our everyday experience, that these wildfires and the consequences of the wildfires are becoming more common or more problematic over the years. And so it gives you those data, but it's also giving you an interesting metric on which you can gauge the risk 
of wildfires occurring based on the current environmental conditions. Now, how we translate that index or that risk score to behavioral change among human beings, I'm not so sure. We've had Smokey the Bear, you know, for 40 mm -hmm. years. So people understand. And of course, those, even if there is a very low base rate of human errors or other errors that cause wildfires, they can just be tremendously devastating under these conditions. Yeah. And I wanted kind of to share a couple more numbers for you that were surprising to me. So it, it turns out that somewhere between 88% of fires and 92% of the burned area from the autumn wildfires are attributed to human causes. So highlighting um, what they call human ignition sources as key contributors. But interestingly, as you mentioned, Smokey the Bear, it turns out that the number of ignitions has declined over the past several decades. Oh, so people see. are becoming more So that's more encouraging. Aware. That's encouraging. The problem is, is every ignition it, is, in fact, more dangerous or more damaging. Exactly. Because of the conditions. Exactly. It just shows that we need to do more to continue to push down that base rate even lower. Um, and there's probably some other strategies, which I am not really capable of describing that can help mitigate some of the damage of either controlled burns you hear about or other uh, forestry policies that can help uh, reduce the extent of the damage. Yeah, and they definitely recommend things like prescribed burning, uh, which they say re reduces fuel loads um, and just improves the general ecosystem health uh, so that you can get rid of some of the you know, debris and therefore you know, when you have... Uh, uh, plants, I guess, that are more fire resistant uh, in some ways growing as opposed to just a lot of dead branches around. But also that one of the biggest ways to reduce the risk, at least in their model, was uh, a, a real decrease in fossil fuel use. And that some of the main drivers of climate change, they argue, uh, we have to really think about and and that, you know, decreasing the fossil fuel usage is probably the most significant factor that we can implement in order to reduce uh, the devastation of these wildfires. Yeah. So it looks like uh, the next consensus view. <laughs> yeah, the next couple years, uh, we still have high risk, but it does seem encouraging, hopefully, that some of these, uh, you know, ideas of, of burning the uh, or, or these controlled burns. Uh, where, you know, a lot of the land in California, at least, that is un is forested is federal land. And so if there is, uh, you know, federal interest in actually doing these controlled burns, then that seems that that, that will at least mitigate the amount of acres that get burned when these wildfires ignite. Yeah, I'd love to see air quality index data for San Francisco, because it's where I live, but I'm interested in other areas too, but over, say, the last 10 to 15 years. Are we having more days where the air quality is considered unhealthy? And if you remember, having been in California now for two decades, when I thought of AQI early on, it really had to do with kind of human-produced smog. Remember, it was always the issue with yeah. the spare the air days and the other things about California living was, boy, there's just too many cars on the road. And under certain conditions, those can make it just really hellish, right? If there's low winds or hot temperatures or whatever, it was more of the smog and smoke uh, of exhaust. But I feel that it's kind of flipped a little bit where now the really AQI interest is these 
is the smoke and the and the debris from from wildfires. I mean, and those seem to be, you know, the, the encouraging thing is that they seem to be still limited in terms of the number of days. But when you look at those air quality indices uh, on those days when it's smoky, I mean, it really is frightening. Like they're they're really high up there. But hopefully that's only for three or four days, as opposed to living in a place like Los Angeles in the 1980s, where you had maybe a, a lower peak, but a, a more, more consistent, chronic, yeah. more chronic uh, problem. And so even when you look at the air quality index warnings, they say things like, you know, if you were exposed for more than 24 hours at this air quality, that's when you might, you know, see some of the issues. And anytime we see it going into the unhealthy level, I mean, we certainly shut our doors, put on our air purifiers. We're not we're not spending 24 hours insofar as we can uh, in this kind of air quality. But that, you know, if that becomes something that is 300 days of the year, which would be the case if it was just an overlying smog, I mean, you can't, you can only keep yourself indoors for so long. Well, I guess, you, you know, citywide or statewide, you're encompassing individuals with varying health status, yeah. right? So, you know, when you and I would go camping when we're younger to have a night by the campfire, which certainly, if you think about it, mm -hmm. is probably giving a really high particulate in the air and pretty low AQI in that immediate area of where the wildfire mm -hmm. is. That's acute, but very high. But mm -hmm. also, we're young and healthy. And so right. it's not... And similarly, we've had a number of days, but in general... You know we're fairly healthy, and I don't have a, I don't feel like we've had a lot of uh, health consequences from that. But you're talking about a much bigger population where you have elderly, you have developing children, you have people with asthma and other sure. respiratory conditions, and so you know it's to to have a policy that can help protect everybody, even the most vulnerable. You know, I think that's probably where the AQI recommendations mm -hmm. come from. Even though the truth is, I I see people in San Francisco for a short amount of time going out and doing active things outside on those bad bad air days. And, you know, and there are some people who have to go outside for their work or, you know, for, for other reasons or, you know, the, the homeless people in San Francisco. So obviously there, you know, the, there is a layer of privilege that we can enjoy if we can stay inside our house when we need to. Um, but that's not true. For it's everyone. a solvable problem. It's a solvable problem both from the occurrence and hopefully the technology and our, our climate control you know, it is going to be improved by the continuing transition into clean, renewable sources of energy. But also technologically, I'm sure we can come up with some amazing air purifications for both large areas as well as almost personal PPE yeah. style types of filtration systems. So I think that we can we can solve this. But I hope so, too. But it is interesting to just from a personal perspective to now look at the autumn as a time where, you know, this the, it's hard to go outside because October is usually my favorite month in San Francisco because the weather is usually so awesome. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. 
Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, that's it for Wildfires. What caught your eye this week? Well, do you remember in episode 307, which was another up-to-date that you and I did, I talked about enzymatic breakdown of plastic bottles. Oh, and yeah. so there was huh. a French group that took a uh, an enzyme that derived from a fungus, mm-hmm. and the enzyme was called leaf and branch compost cutinase, or LCC. And remember, they did some molecular magic, were able to create mutants of that mm-hmm. enzyme, and they were able to create a super enzyme that could rapidly break down the main component of bottles, which is called PET, or polyethylene terephthalate, which is a real problematic um, uh, substance there, uh, and break it down very efficiently. And so that's a, I, I love that, not just because of the um, environmentalism of it, but also the being inspired by and then in, and using molecular tools and scientific tools to improve upon uh, Mother Nature's inventions. Yeah. So that was episode 307. Well, I'm going to come back with that because last week's issue of Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, there was an incredible paper uh, from a cross-border collaboration between uh, Portsmouth in, U- in, in the United Kingdom and the National uh, Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado. And they were looking at basically a two-enzyme system from bacteria. Mm. Now, this bacteria, we did talk about in the prior episode because it was discovered that just purely through natural evolution out there in the world with more bottles, that this um, this specific bacteria called Igenella sacchiensis, sacchiensis is able to break down PET. Mm. And they discovered that like other systems where you have certain polymers, cellulosis and others, that's a two-enzyme system that bacteria can come to use. And it turns out this Idionella sacchiensis evolved a two-enzyme system too, where they first have a petase, which mm. depolymerizes the pet, and that creates two soluble products, including one which is called mono-2-hydroxyethyl terephthalate, or MHET, MHET which is then cleaved into terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol by another enzyme called M-hetase. So you have a petase and an M-hetase. I know this sounds like it's Dr. Seuss. But the key here was that there was a lot to be understood about those enzymes. And to kind of really cut to the chase, which is incredible, is not just the characterization of these enzymes that these researchers were able to do both at the angstrom level structural analysis Mm -hmm. of what was important about these enzymes both their their tertiary structure that is the way they're all folded together but also specific amino acid residues that remember you have a protein which is basically a chain of amino acids all stitched together Mm -hmm. which one of those amino acids are really going to be the important for the enzymatic activity but of course the things i love best is they took the petase and the m and the m hetase Mm -hmm. and they stitched them together Hmm. into a kind of a franken molecule what they called a, a chimeric protein okay where they stitched them together 
And not I say not surprisingly, but incredibly, this kind of dual enzyme, you know, novel protein had enhanced enzymatic activity. Ooh, so the, the hole is bigger than the sum of its parts. Exactly right. Wow. And so they did have the proper control, all the controls you could ask for, but one, of course, is the two free enzymes together at equal molar uh, concentrations mm -hmm. okay. and the same. And so I just think this is really cool. So now you've got the possibility, again, of having a biologically inspired, yet technically enhanced, mm -hmm. enzymatic solution to what is an incredible... Um, plastic waste problem we have yeah. worldwide in our oceans in our landfills because this pet and and the 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 plastics that are made of pet simply just we have a very poor throughput in the ability to downcycle those into other plastic mm -hmm. products and so I'm really excited about this the one thing I don't have for you is I wanted to go back to the, the original, the paper from episode 307 from the mm. French group, compare the efficiency, the mm. enzymatic efficiency of that enzyme, their LCC uh, uh, mutant, with the mutant from this UK, yeah, right. US yeah. group to see which one looks like the lead horse uh -huh. if you had to make a bet yeah. on which enzyme to use. I'll report back to you with that. I haven't had a chance okay. to do a sort of a cross-paper analysis. Awesome. I mean, one other thing that kind of strikes me as, as potentially important and maybe one that also uh, wasn't mentioned in the paper is the extent to which the process leaves back, leaves any kind of metabolic byproducts or emissions that we need to worry about if it goes to scale, right? Like, so I can imagine in a, in a lab, you know, maybe that you can, you know, vent or get rid of any kind, anything, any gaseous or nauseous things that, that, that happen as a result. But if you're thinking about a landfill, like there could be potentially other consequences. We've just been talking about air. Any any mention of something like that? You know, uh, not that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're really trying to get these pet polymers down into monomers because mm -hmm. those monomers, and in the, in the French group showed this, those are the building blocks for new plastics. Mm -hmm. And if you can get those down into pure monomers, then you've really then got... you can just recycle. You reuse them. You can really totally reuse mm -hmm. them again. Got it. Um you know, the, some of the questions that this group as well as the French group looked at was that the thermostability, because mm -hmm. if you think away uh, the way that the, the that plastics are now recycled, they basically try to melt them. Right. And so you're gonna, you want to be able to have an enzyme that can work efficiently under the conditions that are currently being used for recycling, because we've already got this large infrastructure, right. you know, as inefficient as it is, or in, you know, in, in insufficient as it is, mm -hmm. you'd love to have that enzyme be able to be kind of bolt right on, right. slot into that. Um, but in terms of like unwanted byproducts, you know, I, I, obviously polyethylene glycol would be one. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we'll have to go back and look at that. So I have one more story that uh, is is a little bit more uplifting, has nothing to do with the climate. So, well, I guess it kind of does, but um, not quite as directly. I mean, everything has to do with climate, right? Uh, it's about whales and about uh, whale singing, which is, you know, I love singing. I'm a singer. Uh, so there was a paper that came out actually October 1st, 2020 in Current Biology, where they report on some really interesting techniques of... Um, listening to whale songs of blue whales. So, of course, uh, these, you know, massive mammals, and you can imagine how difficult it is to capture their songs uh, since the ocean is so large. Uh, but this particular group, uh, it was a combination of researchers. Uh, William Ostreich is the first author, uh, John Ryan, the senior author, 
Uh, they were at Stanford and um, Imbari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. Uh, and there's actually a, um, you know, there's a there's a un underwater station a few miles off the coast in the Monterey Bay uh, that detects that they they have this like you know little research station well below uh, the sea. And what they did is they put in there some really uh, high quality recording instruments. And they also tracked uh, whales that they had tagged. So um, one of the things that I think is really cool is that, is that they use these two measures together to compare whale songs when whales are foraging off the coast of the Monterey Bay and when they're migrating. And they found some interesting differences. So when the blue whales are singing off the coast of Central California, um, the sounds that are picked up, at least by the uh, sensors, are in the low frequency range, um, which means that they can use their passive acoustic, mo acoustic monitoring tools uh, in that substation in order to, you know, listen. But when those whales migrate away, or if they uh, if their frequency of song goes in the higher frequencies, then it's really hard to sort of measure what it is that they're you know how they're singing. Um, and so they didn't have multi-year acoustic data streams, um, and they also didn't really know what the whales were doing uh, while they were singing because they didn't have you know, they didn't have trackings from individual animals. So in this paper, they integrate both population and individual level measurements. So first they looked at five years of blue whale song from the continuous uh, acoustic data. And uh, this, this is from the passive acoustic, acoustic monitoring. And then they also included whale-borne tags. So they had 15 uh, to measure the vocal foraging and migratory behaviors of individuals in the same ecosystem. So I thought that was really cool. Very cool. So here's what they found, which I thought was really interesting. Foraging blue whales sing largely at night, while when they're migrating, they sing during the day. And in my head, I have this image of migratory whales like like singing like as if they're, you know, singing a work song, like, mm -hmm. hey ho, mm -hmm. hey ho, it's home from work we go, and they're migrating away, you know, to wherever it is that they end up going. And when they're foraging, they're saying, <laughs> what is that? that, in your eye, like a big pizza so pie, that, that's amore. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it too. And maybe they sing primarily at night when they're foraging, because maybe that's not when they're actually the moon eating. Saying, yeah. uh, uh, and they don't want to scare away the... Fish, shrimp, krill, I don't know. Is that what blue whales eat? Something like that, right? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Anyway, I thought this was a really interesting study. It has beautiful uh, images of the data. And, uh, and I just thought it was really cool that they were able to put these two measurements together and study something as difficult to study as blue whales. So that's my little good news story for the day. Yeah, it'd be interesting. You know, there's a very rich literature on songbird learning. And it'd be interesting to know how blue whales acquire their songs over time. Are there any yeah. parallels to some of the other, you know, like certainly songbirds? That well, you get back to me on the plastic eating enzymes and I will get back to you on how blue whales learn to sing. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. 
I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.